This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Dave Selinger. Dave has founded and built some hugely successful companies, among them Redfin, the well-known real estate brokerage firm, and Rich Relevance, which revolutionized shopping experiences for a number of retailers, including Macy's, Office Depot, Barney's, and more. On top of his very colorful career as a founder, Dave was also an early employee at Amazon, working directly under Jeff Bezos himself. In this episode, we discuss his past experiences at Redfin, Rich Relevance, and of course, Amazon, why his experience at Stanford helped shape company culture in the companies that he himself has founded, why Maslow's hierarchy of needs may be a good foundation in which to build a startup, his latest company, Deep Sentinel, an AI-based home protection technology company, fighting crime, and much, much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is Dave Selinger. So let's talk about technology first, because from what I understand, you taught yourself programming in basic when you were six. By the time you were nine, you knew four programming languages. And then by the time you went to Stanford, you knew something like 20 languages. Is that about right? Yep, that's about right. I mean, I grew up in a really, really small town. And so when I say I taught myself, you know, for better or worse, right, like, that's actually what I meant. Like, I, there wasn't like a, a really good computer club to learn that type of stuff. I mean, we had a computer class in, in middle school and in high school, but there you would just learn, you know, basic or, or maybe Pascal. For the uh, the younger listeners is what old people use to describe programming languages that were kind of uh, contemporary at the time that the dinosaurs were walking around the uh, surface of the earth. I was about six years old when my mom bought our first computer. She bought a leading edge Model D, which was, you know, like a, I think it was maybe 2000 or $3,000, which back then, right, like, you know, you got to kind of remember inflation and all that stuff. And, and I think people are probably remembering inflation these days more than they did maybe two years ago. And, uh, and that was a ton of money. And I was mad enthused. I remember like everything that the, the very first game we played was this game called Castle Wolfenstein. It was horrible. You know, it was, <laughs> it was a dumb game. And then I played this text game Zork and I was just super committed to making my own games. And so that was the entire personal driver for learning all these languages. So I learned basic. I learned how to make some games in basic. But basic was, you know, the name says it all, a basic programming language that doesn't let you make really advanced games. And so I then taught myself Pascal, I taught myself C++, and um, then I went to a college prep program called CTY, which was amazing. It's put on by Johns Hopkins University, and it allows young teenagers, 10 years old to 15 year old, to take college courses. I loved it, right? I mean, like that was uh, this little kid in a little town, rural town, who I just didn't really understand how to relate to the people around me in this world. And as soon as I found a couple places where I fit in, I just leaned in and did everything I could about it. So when your friends are out socializing, going to parties, playing sports, whatever, you're at home coding? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I didn't have a ton of friends uh, growing up. I, I became more popular towards the end of high school. I actually became my student body president, which is kind of a, a weird full 180 twist. And so up until about my sophomore year of high school, I was pretty much exactly what you just said, like just 100% at home programming, I would get home after school, and I would program till, you know, sometimes like one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning, I would I would hack BBSs, 
Uh, at some point, I may or may not have logged into some of federal government te- telephone lines and then stopped appropriately. I kind of got this sense like, gosh, I could do a lot of stuff here. I don't know what I want to do. How about let's not do anything until I really kind of know what I want to do here. Initially, you have grand plans to go to MIT, and then you end up going to Stanford studying robotics for undergrad? Um, yeah. So I, when I was really little, I watched a program. This is, again, right around when we got that first computer, we watched a program on PBS about MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology's robotics program. And freshmen at MIT build a robot that has to engage in competition. It's kind of like battle bots, right? What we watch now. But again, go back to the time of dinosaurs. And this isn't like cool and exciting. It was freaking magic, right? Like how did these things do this? And the, and the competition in 1983 was that the freshmen needed to build a robot that collected as many ping pong balls as possible and blocked the competitor from getting those ping pong balls. I recorded this show on our VHS. Again, like all of this is like dinosaur language, right? So, so the VHS was this box. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're aging ourselves. Nobody knows what a VHS is. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to record it. And you had a you know, physical tape and we recorded it. And I burnt that tape. I mean, I would watch that program. Like kids today would watch YouTube just over and over and over and over and over again. And I built my own version of this. It sucked, you know, like I was a kid. And I tried to think of all these designs. I had notepads that were dedicated to trying to figure out how I would win that competition if I got to do the one in 1983. And so I wrote them a letter and I said, hey, I am committed to going to MIT. And this is a a six-year-old, you know, like telling my story. I think my aunt was an assistant professor at MIT at the time. And so I got a really nice response back. I got a care package. I got a, a sweatshirt. It was a white sweatshirt, just said MIT on it, which, you know, again, imagine a seven-year-old showing up to school with a sweatshirt that says MIT on it. And so, yeah, I mean, fast forward, uh, whatever it is, 12 years, I apply. I did really well in my SATs. I basically got perfect in science and math and then did really well in in English and the soft subjects. And so I was like 100% sure I was getting into MIT. I applied early, committed to going. And about November 19th, in uh, 1995, I got a letter back from MIT. It was the the small envelope. And uh, it said, you know, maybe think about some other options and uh, keep in touch. Well, we can be friends, but we're not going to date. And uh, I was crushed. I mean, <laughs> just from the peak of the world to, to nothing. But, you know, I mean, the, the story ends well, right? Like who gets to say my safety school was Stanford and I ended up going to Stanford and studying robotics? I mean... I was going to say, uh, all good things from there. It ends up being a blessing in disguise. I, I think so. I mean, MIT, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is very techy. Like, it's it's just all tech, no kind of well-rounded nature to it. And I think, ultimately, if I look at my life and my career and my goals and the principles that matter to me and my family, I'm really glad I got a much more well-rounded experience. You know, I got to go to school with Chelsea Clinton at Stanford and, and kind of see that whole experience. I got to talk to her about what that was like. I got to go to school with a guy who is a member of the royal family from Saudi Arabia and what that was like. And, uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of things, one of the things that people don't know about Stanford too, a lot of people know Chelsea Clinton went there, but uh, Kenneth Starr's daughter also was at Stanford at the same time. Kenneth Starr was the main prosecutor of President Bill Clinton during his impeachment. So on one side of campus, you had Secret Service protecting Chelsea Clinton. That was on the uh, the west side of campus. She lived in, she actually lived in, in, in the dorm right next to mine. 
And then on the other side of campus, also a freshman, you have Kenneth Starr's daughter being protected by U.S. Marshals. So Stanford was great. I loved getting to have all of those experiences. The other thing that's really neat about Stanford, which is, I think, pretty unique, is they do an aggressive need-blind admission policy. So, so a lot of schools have need-blind, meaning that they'll admit people regardless of whether they can pay. But Stanford really kind of takes it a step further in that part of their objective in the creation of every class is to pull people from all walks of life. So be excellent in something. I, I don't know what that is, right? Maybe you're the most excellent basket weaver in the world. You're the daughter of the president. That's got to be an amazing experience for all of our students. And we have a lot to offer to you as well. You know, again, when you say I, going to Stanford was a blessing, it's those types of memories that to me, I cherish, you know, and I, I look at when I raise my kids, I want them to understand the breadth of humanity. Um, let me dive deeper into that just for a moment, because you brought up something important, which is this approach to admission. And what it makes me think of is this idea of building company culture and getting it right. Do you feel like what you saw from Stanford was almost a blueprint for the way that you've built your companies over the years and how you've created company culture? Man, Adam, I have never thought of that, draw that kind of direct a line. As I introspect and listen to the, the question, I mean, I can, I can come with no answer shy of like, holy crap, like, yes, you've unlocked <laughs> something that's a, a direct line. And let me actually answer the question fully first. Yes, in that when I'm building a company culture, I find that embracing the entirety of a human being is really important. That, that doesn't mean necessarily like, hey, let's talk about politics and your gender preference or sexual preference or like whatever all day long. But it does mean that in our culture where people in the tech world, especially spend 10 to 12 hours a day on their job, that feeling comfortable and connected to the people around you is that important. And so I would kind of bend some of those lines, not to the degree, again, where we're talking about politics all day long, but hey, let's engage in politics just to not debate, but understand that, hey, there's this person that I disagree with and I love working with them. Holy smokes, that... That guy voted for Obama and I was the biggest Trump supporter and we love the same food and we program the same way and we think about safety and families the same way. Look at how much we have in common, even though we disagree in that one thing. And that is, to me, one of the biggest like ahas. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of what I think about in company culture. And it's it gets a little bit uncomfortable sometimes in terms of, oh my gosh, there are people that I really disagree with that I'm dealing with here. Um, you know, talk about like divisive issues in America, like pro-life or poor choice. But again, even in issues like that, so I personally have a, a specific opinion, but I love hearing the opinions of people that I disagree with because that opens my eyes and I understand those opinions more. And if I can do that at work, it makes me even more comfortable at work and more appreciative of the individuals that I have at work. So I absolutely do that. So we'll highlight a few of these companies that you founded because they're important to talk about. I mean, you, you have so many on your resume, so I'm not going to mention them all. But Rich Relevance, one, uh, Redfin, obviously being a big one, Deep Sentinel, your most recent. Two-part question. One, how do you feel like company culture differs across these three companies? And two, when do you think is the right time to sort of introduce the idea of forming or paying attention to company culture? Is it those first couple of employees that you should start thinking about it? Is it at 10, 20, 200? When does it make sense? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that the biggest and most stark transition for me personally was my, my transition from Redfin to Rich Relevance. I think we had a great culture at, at all these companies, but one of the things I learned at Redfin, I was the CTO and co-founder there. I was not the CEO. And I think I created a great culture amongst the engineering staff. We had a great time. We worked long hours and we accomplished, you know, just freaking amazing things. It was such a fun company to start. And uh, had I to do it over again, I would do it all day long, every day. It was wonderful. That said, when it came to where the rubber meets the road and you have to choose, do I go left or do I go right? Those hard decisions where you have to give one thing up in order to choose another. Ultimately, one of the things I realized at Redfin was that as the CTO, that decision wasn't mine. That decision was the CEO's. And I could do as much as I could in my role, but that ultimately culture is owned by the CEO. And that doesn't mean that every single day is controlled by the CEO. It doesn't mean that the, the CEO has got to be in your grill every single day. But it means that if you look at kind of the long-term path of company culture, when the big decisions come up, are we going to spend 5% or 8% on on you know uh, employee happiness? Are we going to have benefits be an important part of our culture or are benefits not? And it's going to be really about what do we do every day and how do we treat employees? Those types of decisions, as much influence as you might have in another position, are fundamentally the decision of the CEO. And in that particular case, there were a lot of places where I disagreed with my co-founder and we had a lot of tension about it. And so in the transition to rich relevance, the number one decision that I made answers your question, I think, which is that I sat down with my co-founders. Uh, these are two guys that I had known for 30 plus years at the time. I and mean, these were like my, my best friends. One of them was my best man at my wedding, which I had at Rich Relevance. The other man was the cantor at my wedding. So like these guys are like close, right? One of them, his name's Tyler Cohn. I lived in his house at the age of three when my parents moved. That's how long I'd known these guys. The other guy was my roommate throughout all of college, Michael. And so I sat down with them before we hired our first employee. And I said, here's how I think culture is important and that I am going to allow the three of us to own this together because I recognize that it has to come from me, but I want us to own it together. In terms of the transition from Rich Relevance to Deep Sentinel, I founded that one quite a bit differently. But I took that same principle of making culture part of the decision on day one. In fact, I brought my attorney from Rich Relevance to Deep Sentinel. And uh, he was the first person I called when I founded Deep Sentinel to kind of file all the first paperwork and you know get stuff going with the Secretary of State and da 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 And in that very first phone call, I remember this because um, he and I, you know, to speak about politics, right? He's like hyper, hyper right. And I'm kind of more centrist left. And so he and I, you know, we have lots of conversations <laughs> about that all the time. But we had a talk about Trump at the time. And then we had to talk about like, let's found the company and let's kind of get these things done. And he likes to do things by the book, right? Like here's our form. It has everything kind of filled out. You just put these two numbers in here and then we sign it and we're done. Can we do that, please? And I was like, no, how about let's change everything about the way we do equity compensation for the entire company for the rest of its history. And he's like, great. So you want me to write a bespoke compensation plan in the founding documents of the company? And I was like, yes, let's do that. And, uh, and so we had a long, long discussion about why. And, and he was just completely pitching me on, don't do this. Don't change the rules. Don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. And I listened to him and I said, okay, cool. I heard you. I think you've got so many good points. We're breaking the rules. And uh, and so from day one at Deep Sentinel, 
we have a very unique equity compensation program because I want to build a company that has slightly more mature employees. I don't want to build it all of 22-year-olds and 23-year-olds. I want our average kind of experience level in the company, not because we're ageist, but experience level, pardon me. I want our experience level to be five to 10 years of experience kind of on average in the company. And so that means that we're, we're targeting people that I want to stay instead of goal of a compensation program being to stay one and a half to two years. I want employees to stay three years to six years and really build a career here. And so I wanted to build our compensation program to reflect that from day one. You've been at this company now for almost seven years, is it? Yeah, about six years, yeah. So this is a company that provides consumers the security and safety they need and expect at home. And you're doing this using proprietary machine learning technology to predict crimes before they actually happen. How does this work in practice? Yes. I mean, we use artificial intelligence to identify crime. It's, it's a little bit less like science-y than, than, than that, though. Here's the real basic rule is that Crime, like many things in the world, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so I started analyzing and looking at package thefts, at at catalytic converter thefts, at burglaries, because all these people had ring doorbells or Nest cameras or Arlo's and things like that. And and they just had these great five to 20 minute long recordings of people stealing their stuff. (laughs) And, you know, again, if you didn't hammer home the point that these things do nothing, right, like there you go. What Deep Sentinel does is we bring a guard to your cameras that are around your business or around your home. And we do that in about 10 seconds. And we do that effectively. We use artificial intelligence to direct guards to the right properties at the right time and the right cameras. And then we intervene using two-way audio. And so we, we have a 110, 105 decibel speaker that we then blare out, hey, what are you doing there? If it's not quite clear they're committing a crime, like they're just kind of parked out in front, you know, can we help you? Or if they're already committing a crime, they got the crowbar out and they're at the window. Hey, jerk, a-hole, stop. The police are on their way. And we do that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 times a day. Are you agnostic as to what type of hardware is in the home? Um, We are getting there. So we currently support about three manufacturers of hardware, including uh, and, and and then our own hardware. But we've included uh, third-party standards-based hardware. So we don't support Ring and Nest, like the kind of consumer-grade stuff. But there's an industry standard called OnVIF, and we do support uh, most OnVIF cameras. And we, we have, we've already certified a number of different brands, and we're in the process of expanding that. We started out with our own cameras. We did that because it was much easier to kind of tell our brand story using our own hardware that looked different and, and felt different and had high compatibility and high success rate. And so we started with our own hardware. In the last year and a half, we've expanded to supporting a bunch of other uh, third-party hardware. How mature is this market? Like, are, are there a lot of competitors? Are companies like Scout or, or Zero Eyes, are these direct or indirect competitors? Are they playing in the same niche? That's a great question. You know, it's it's pretty much a new category. There are a couple of like small, really small companies that have been trying to do this, but no one that's really taken the approach that technology is going to redo this, that technology and artificial intelligence, data science, and and really kind of focusing on the underlying software and machine learning can make this business massively more scalable, a lot more efficient, and maybe more importantly, really effective, right? To kind of kind of drive home that point, how we use data, we use data in everything that we do down to our performance reviews, like our um, guards, they're you know, kind of in a, in a remote call center. Every quarter, they get a report that's generated by our machine learning data science team that says, 
here's how we would have expected you to perform based on our metrics. And here's how you perform. You get literally like a score sheet based on a bunch of different KPIs about how we expect guards to perform. And we know what that's supposed to look like. And that, that enables us to be much more you know, consistent in terms of how we manage, much more uh, effective in terms of our performance management and, and training. And then, you know, if we need to, very crystal clear in terms of working people out of the organization because they're not hitting our benchmarks. So you guys have raised something like $25 million from investors. Jeff Bezos participated in the Series A, and we can talk about Bezos in a moment because you spent time in Amazon doing work for Bezos and liaising with him directly. So we'd love to get some... <laughs> Some storytelling there. But before we get there, you've said that Deep Sentinel has the potential to be a $50 billion company. So what is it about the upside of this market that gets you so excited? It's a great question. And it took me a long time to answer it. I had some instinct about it as I was starting it, that that there was a huge opportunity that no one else was doing this. And there was a huge amount of need for it. And over the course of the last about three years, so we, it took us about three years to build the product and, and come to market. And we came to market in 2019. And since 2019, we've been really focused on testing our, our sales, our marketing, our pricing, who our customer is, how we message to them. And that has really brought about this realization about how massive this market is. We have come across so many people, mostly small business owners and mid-sized business owners, who have a problem that they know cannot be solved by any of the existing players. You mentioned Scout Security, which, which for folks that aren't familiar with that, that's basically like a, a DIY version of ADT. And you know, I kind of think about ADT and camera solutions as uh, on the low end of the market. They're they're below fifty bucks a month, if you will, maybe maybe a little bit more, but really kind of averaging out at about fifty bucks a month. And you have door and window sensors that will trigger after somebody comes into property, and then they call the police and ask the police to respond. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have like the really premium security. This is like Mark Zuckerberg at his home, or like a big building in New York and Manhattan where you have a guard sitting out front 24-7. What I realized and what makes me realize that this is such a big opportunity is there's basically nothing in the middle. Between 50 bucks a month, which is about how much you'll pay for an alarm, and about ten dollars or $20,000 a month, which is how much you'll pay for a guard, there's nothing in the middle. right? So you got a, a mom and pop shop. I own five auto repair stores, let's just say. And I get hit once a month by somebody coming in to steal catalytic converters. I can't use cameras because those don't do anything. I can't use an alarm system because they're not actually breaking in. So those don't even, even at 50 bucks a month, it's less than, it's worth less than 50 bucks a month to me because it literally does nothing for me. They're not actually breaking in. Most of the crime now is outdoor. And then I can't afford a $10,000 guard because yes, stealing a catalytic converter costs me 2,000 or 3,000 bucks uh, at a shot, but it's not 10,000 bucks. There's no ROI, but I would pay 250 bucks all day long, every single day to prevent that from happening. If that happens twice a month, I would pay that all day long, every single day. If I have a computer store that has a big plate glass window in the front, by the way, most people, again, unless you, you own one of these stores, you don't realize those windows aren't cheap. They're not a thousand bucks even. They're usually somewhere between $2,000 and $10,000 to repair. Even if someone doesn't steal that much computer equipment, your minimum cost of repair is 10000 bucks. And so for all of those businesses, having something that's not quite 10000 bucks, but that can do something more than my $50 a month solution is massive. There are 25 million businesses, Adam, in the United States that are experiencing exactly what I just said. And so in terms of my belief that this is a, a huge opportunity, there's three things. One, it's that market size. Two, 
It's that no one else has even tried to build a technology solution to solve this. And then number three, it's that what we do works. I mean, it's just amazing. Go to our YouTube channel, man, and, and watch the Deep Sentinel videos. It is like watching cops. It's just crime stop after crime stop after crime stop after crime stop. We stop an average of 15 to 25 crimes every single day. No, it's incredible. Um, and I'll add number four to this list, which I've heard you talk about on prior podcasts, which is this idea that this value proposition actually deeply connects with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? On a fundamental level. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's playing into our psychology, correct? Oh, man. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I'm a big Pavlovian interpreter of, of the universe. And at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is safety. And I mentioned this just a little bit ago, but the reason I have so many cop friends around the country is because I've been working with a group called The Parent Project for the last about eight years. And The Parent Project, I became involved with because I'm a dad, I, I love my kids, and I have been trying to research what are the things in the world that are actually making a dent in the universe and changing the trajectory of people's lives. And, you know, there's this kind of nature or nurture uh, argument. Where are things that change the way people nurture that actually have statistically significant impacts in the outcome of people's lives? And the at the kind of fringes of society, we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of youth that are having interactions with law enforcement really early in their lives. And if you draw the line from that, you won't be surprised that a, a vast majority, somewhere between 80 and 90% of them, do not then have an intervention that changes the trajectory so that they spend, you know, unfortunately, the rest of their lives having ongoing contact with law enforcement, not necessarily becoming productive members of society or becoming, you know, destructive members of society. And so I started looking at how do you change that? And, and what I learned was that the Department of Justice has funded a bunch of research about this. And they have determined that if you can make a child feel more safe, change their parenting at that moment, it is the single thing that can just cause a left turn in that. And so I, I ended up meeting a bunch of police officers who are dedicated to teaching parents how to be better parents as soon as their kids have interactions with law enforcement. And the, the level of impact that safety makes in terms of changing the course of these children's lives is astronomical. If, no, if people aren't familiar with this, a lot of your listeners are going to be kind of in the upper echelons of the financial, you know, socioeconomic sphere here. And so we get exposed to parenting programs that are part of what I would call them, you know, the great parenting financial complex, which is like how to get your kid into Stanford and MIT. But, but look at parenting differently. Look at parenting as a tool for all of society. And you'll realize that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is present in everything that touches our society. If people felt more safe. I believe that we would have less road rage. I believe that we would have less car accidents. We'd have more ability to talk about politics the way that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So Deep Sentinel, to me, represents the ability to change and influence the sense of safety for an entire generation. And when I say there's 25 million businesses that need this, that means there's 25 million business owners that need this, that are staying up late at night worried about their business, that are staying up late at night worried about providing food for their family. You know, this idea of safety makes me think of something that a lot of employees need and don't necessarily feel, especially early on in their careers. 
there's an incredible amount of insecurity amongst young people when they enter the workforce, you know, in terms of proving themselves, proving their worth, etc. And funny enough, you know, you're an early employee at Amazon. We're talking about 2003. You're working directly under Jeff Bezos at the time. You have direct interactions with him. But you said, you know, you weren't at all intimidated. Uh, you felt kind of completely secure, completely confident in your early dealings with him. Yeah. <sighs> You know, I got to be honest. So it's, uh, you know, we've we've shown a very positive light on me for the majority of the podcast. This is a little bit more of the dark side. You know, I, I yeah, I mean, when I first met Jeff Bezos, I was not intimidated at all. And the guy, even in 2003, was already worth a couple billion dollars, right? And I'll be frank, the reason for that had nothing to do with my actual abilities. It just had to do with my ego. You know, when he walked into the room, a lot of people, when that type of thing happens, they see other people as above them or below them and they kind of stack rank them. And I do that too. But unfortunately, my view of the world was that I was at the top and everybody else was kind of down here, including Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and and so he walked into the room. I was like, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Let's let's you know talk about this stuff. And I realized over the course of that meeting, after everybody was quiet every time he spoke and people would talk over me, I was like, oh, there is a different power dynamic here. I'm I guess I'm not in charge. <laughs> and uh, he chewed the living heck out of my manager. Um, and uh, I didn't realize that that was one of the last meetings he was going to have with my manager because then I was going to replace my manager. And that was how I kind of took over that team. Part of it's ego. And, and you know, I've, I've tried to teach myself to be more humble over the years. And then part of it's just that I'm on the autism spectrum. And so my the way that I view the world, it doesn't mean that I'm not emotional, by the way. I'm, I'm, I can get very, very emotional. But... When I'm not triggered, my way of viewing the world is generally very mathematical, meaning there's a problem in front of you. Everybody has something to contribute to get to the end. And then there's a right answer that we have to choose. And that's really it. And so if I'm in the room and there's a problem and this guy has asked us to solve it, I'm going to contribute what I can contribute. And then we're going to go do it. And if that happens to be the CEO, it happens to be the CEO. If it happens to be Jeff Bezos, it happens to be Jeff Bezos. And if I happen to be the smartest person in the room and I'm the one who can solve the problem, then I'm going to go solve the problem. And so I did. Although you guys, you guys present an early model for collecting customer behavior data on your first day, from what I understand, and Jeff completely hates it. Yeah. Yeah. He was not, uh, he was unpleased. He, as I said, he, my manager brought me in. I did all the instructions for my manager, kind of built that model out. Uh, my manager then presented it, at which point I realized that my manager had had me do work that was not what Jeff wanted. And so he undressed, like just categorically, boom, 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 boom. Here are all the things that you didn't do that I asked for. I asked for this. You didn't do it. I asked for this. You didn't do it. I asked for this. You didn't do it. We are now meeting every other day for an hour until this is going the right direction. Because Jeff had promised to his board of directors that this was going to change the course of Amazon. I didn't know that, but now I do. So after going through that process, it became clear that I was contributing a lot to how to solve these problems. I wasn't by a country mile. I was not the smartest person on my team. Let me just be really clear. We had a group of PhDs and scientists that were figuring out how to do these things. But what I was doing that my manager didn't quite figure out how to do at the time was how to connect the goal with the technical asks. And I was doing that. So within about three weeks, I was asked to replace him. And then we got all those things done and built our, our very first cust long, longitudinal, long-term customer analytics database. We produced our very first long-term analysis of customer behavior to him. And then we started producing real results. And when we started producing real results, instead of kind of a theoretical model that lived in the realm of theory, it lived in the, the actual data that Jeff wanted to see 
that led to hypotheses of tests that we could do. And then we would run those tests and then we would figure out the hypothesis was right or wrong, either making money or losing money. And then bam, we started making tons and tons and tons of money. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, you were telling me you had a ton of early mentors. Do you consider Jeff to be one of those people? Mentor is kind of not the right word I would use in terms of my relationship with Jeff. He didn't he didn't kind of reach across the bow and say like, hey, let me help you with with the problem. He was a great goalpost. And uh, and his goalpost was really far away. No one had ever done it before. It was really, really hard. So in terms of learnings, I learned a ton from that, right? Like, let me put a goal a hundred times further than anyone else has ever gone and maybe two times further than you think you can get to. And let's see if you get there. And, uh, and he did that and he helped me to it. And, you know, again, we, we had ultimately had really good results. Dave, thanks for spending the time today. Really appreciate the stories, the experience shares. Where can people follow you and follow obviously what Deep Sentinel is doing? Adam, it's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed all the questions and I enjoyed talking about stuff that you know you don't talk about a lot of the time. So it's, it's been neat. To learn more about me, there's two places. One is that I, that I point folks, one is that YouTube channel, uh, Deep Sentinel's YouTube channel. It's uh, every single week we produce a new video of us stopping more crimes. We just pick the cherry pick some of the best ones and float them out there. And then the other place is on LinkedIn. So you can follow me on, on LinkedIn. I produce articles. In fact, like you mentioned, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it's like you're reading my mind. I'm about to publish a, a blog post literally later today on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In all honesty, didn't tell Adam that at any point before this, but that's, uh, that's coming out later today. Thank you, man. Uh, I will look for that post. Dave, appreciate the time. Wishing you the best in your next chapter. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.